poor sound man, he can only do so much. You have to turn the microphone on in order for it to work. <laughs> so we're on essential traits of the church. Again, we're on worship today. It's the 11th trait of the church. We've got this week and next week, and we will be done with this series. Um, and I think some of you enjoyed it, have enjoyed it, and some of you are looking forward to it being over with. But either way, we're almost there. Uh, so we're looking at worship this morning, John 4, 1 through 26. Our previous traits that we have looked at, what we should be doing as a church, preach and teach God's word, evangelism, discipleship, prayer, giving, membership, we should belong to a church, ordinances, fellowship, excuse me, accountability and discipline, and then last week we looked at leadership in the church, the official offices of leadership within the church, and of course those are all on fbcdan.com, and you can always go back and see those or hear those there. But today we're looking at worship, worship, why does worship matter? Why does worship matter? The object and the expression of your worship is the most consequential aspect of your life. The object and proper expression of your worship is the most consequential, that's a hard word for me to say, aspect of your life. Or said another way, who and how we worship determines our results in life. Who and how we worship determines our results in life. What you ascribe value to what you ascribe value to will direct your time, your energy, your finances, your gifts, your emotions, your decisions, your life. What you ascribe value to will direct everything in your life, therefore will affect every outcome in your life. So worship is a big deal. A generic uh, definition of worship is the adoration and praise of God, ascribing to Him the value and worth that is due to Him. In the basic sense this is worship, ascribing the value to God that is worth that He is worth that is due Him. Adoration and praise of God. But how? That's what we're going to talk about today. How do we do that as a church? I read a story this week about a former uh, person in the British Parliament named Neil Martin. He was taking some of his constituents, some people that he represents in the Parliament, uh, on a tour uh, of the British Commons in the, in the government area. And about that time, Lord Halsham, which is the Lord, was the Lord Chancellor at that time, of the, of the parliament, which is like the British Congress, same, same thing. He's dressed up in all his stuff, all his you know, fancy clothes, and his, all of his adorned in all of his fancy Lord Chancellor stuff. And he comes around the corner, and he sees his friend, Neil Martin, guiding these people, and he hollers out at him, Neil! And all the people that were there with Neil did. <laughs> Neil. Because <laughs> they didn't want to disobey the Lord Chancellor's command. That's worship. That's what worship is. So we're digging into John chapter 4 this morning. Uh, it's a story that many of you know or have at least heard of more than once. Probably it's Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. Now, a word quickly about the Samaritans before we get into this to, to deal with the significance of what's taking place between Jesus and this woman. So a quick history lesson. We know that the, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms in 930 B.C., it became two different kingdoms. Ten tribes in the north continued with the name Israel. Two tribes in the south continued with the name Judah. Two different nations split with two different kings in 930 B.C. And then in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come in and conquer the northern tribe, the ten tribes of Israel. They take most of them away 
to another place in their empire, especially the men of fighting age, and they leave some behind. And then they repopulate that area with people from all over the kingdom of the Assyrians. They take them back to that area, and then over hundreds of years, the people that were left that were Israelites and the people that were brought in from other parts of the Assyrian, Assyrian nation, Assyrian empire, have children, separate, more generations come after that, and those are the people that become the Samaritans. So they, are a, they are a mixed breed of Arab-ish, Jewish-ish background. And to the Jews, they are a defiled people. Then, uh, in 597 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah, is conquered by the Babylonians and taken away to Babylon. And then, just a few short years, would have seemed like a long short years to them, 538 B.C., the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and the Persians let the Jews start coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, to reestablish their nation, kind of. That was in 538 B.C. The Samaritans offer to help the Jews, which they are now called, that's when they gain that name, after they go to Babylon and come back, they start being called the Jews, the people of Judah, the Jews. The Samaritans offered to help them rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And the Jews are like, nah, we're good because you're Samaritans. <laughs> you go do your Samaritan things in Samaria. So they say no, and the Samaritans don't really appreciate that. So they go and make their own place of worship around 400, the 400-ish B.C. on Mount Gerizim, okay, which is in Samaria which is the place of where we're looking at today in John chapter 4. So there's two separate places of worship, one in Jerusalem for the Jews and one on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans, both claiming it to be a holy site, both claiming it to be the proper place of worship for God. Mount Gerizim is where most scholars think that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. It's where Jacob, uh, he bought the area and made a... Uh, an altar to the Lord, that's all in Genesis. That's the area we're talking about. Then in 128 B.C., the Jewish king, John Hyrannus, attacks the Samaritans and destroys the temple at Mount Gerizim. And then in A.D. 6, jumping ahead a few hundred years, the Samaritans sneak into Jerusalem and into the temple late at night and defile the temple with the bones of dead people, place dead bones in the temple. So to say that the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other which you have heard in church more than once, is a gross understatement. They detest one another. They cannot stand one another. You're not supposed to talk to them in public, be seen with them in public, do anything with them in public. But it's not a biblical mandate. It's all just a societal man mandate. It's a cultural thing, not a biblical thing. So that is the, the, the background of the people of the story that we're looking at today. Now, this map is just to show you real quick that... Up here, that's Galilee. That's where Jesus lived and grew up. That's the Sea of Galilee that you hear about, or the Lake of Tiberias, same place. Jordan River, right? Dead Sea down here. You've got Jerusalem right here. This purple area, that's Samaria, okay? The people of, of, the, of the, the Jewish people hated these people so much that when they went from here to here, instead of going from here to here, they went around Samaria and extended their trip by days in order to not be associated with the Samaritans. But Jesus, you'll see at the beginning of the story, doesn't follow normal cultural rules. Okay? Jesus made the trip right that way. So he's leaving Jerusalem, going back this way, and Sychar, the city of this story we're looking at today, is right there, not too far into being into Samaria. So 
Suffice it to say that there would be a little bit of tension in this meeting between these people and that's taking place. So we're looking at John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. Not because he wanted to, because he was destined to. He had to. Not because he couldn't go around, because he had to. He had a purpose. He had a destiny to fulfill. He had a, a, he had a God-given role that he must play. So he had to travel through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening, or yours may say noon. There's, there's discrepancy on what the actual time was and what if he was using the Roman time or the Jewish time. That's why there's a discrepancy. Which time did he mean? Either way, it was hot, and she was there by herself. Verse number 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, no less? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's in parenthesis. She didn't say that. That's John explaining to us the situation. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You, do, you have answered correctly. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet mountain. Yet you Jews say the, peop, the proper place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, and an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. All right, long, long story, I know, a lot of verses. So what do we get from this today? What do we get from these verses today? Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. First, Jesus is not concerned with social tradition. He's not concerned with cultural tradition. Not for cultural tradition's sake, anyway. He is concerned about people. 
He's concerned about what is best for people because God is concerned about what is best for people, what is best for you and what is best for me. And Jesus is God. So he is concerned about people. He's about telling the truth because the truth is what is best for you and for me and for all peoples. Then she says, when, when he asks for a drink, she says, but you don't even have a bucket. Come on, man, you don't even have a bucket. And who do you think you are anyway? You think you're better than, than our father Jacob? Who do you think you are? Given this living water. What are you talking about? And then Jesus said, verse 13, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Now notice in this section and in this, this statement of, of Jesus that he doesn't say, I am the living water. Many places throughout the Gospel of John, he describes himself as something that I am. I am the bread of life, right? I am the light of the world. He doesn't say, I am the living water. He says, I will give the living water. The living water is a gift. It's not who Jesus is. It's something that he will do, something that he will give. He will give a gift of satisfaction. It says they will never be thirsty again. He will give a gift of satisfaction. He will give eternal life because he will give the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the living water. And he can give the Holy Spirit because of his sacrifice of himself on the cross in our place for our sins, which is his love for us. He will give the Holy Spirit to his followers, the living water. And that will bring fulfillment and satisfaction, that you will thirst no more, Jesus says. And then when he says that, she almost, she almost sarcastically says back to him, well, I want some of this magical water. Please give me some of this water. I mean, that would beat the heck out of having to come here in this hot of the day by myself and draw this other water. Mr. Special Guy, Mr. Better Than Jacob, give me some of this great water. So Jesus, when she responds to him this way, puts her to the test. He challenges her with the truth. He says, go get your husband. She says, verse 17, I don't have a husband. That's what we do, isn't it? (laughs) We give the truth, but kind of. Not really the real truth, just kind of the truth. I don't have a husband, she answered. And Jesus (laughs) says, you have correctly said, I I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and living with a dude right now. That's not your husband. Whoo. (laughs) He drops it on her. He calls her sin, sin. He tells her the truth. And she, like you and like me, what does she do? She changes the subject. <laughs> she changes the subject. She says, oh, so you're a prophet, are you? Ah, Mr. Know-it-all, are you? Know all about me and my five husbands, and then I'm not living with the guy I'm living with now is not my husband. Mr. Know-it-all, how, then how come y'all worship over there in Jerusalem, but we worship over here on Mount Gerizim? You know, Mount Gerizim, where Abraham offered Isaac. You know, where Jacob was here and bought this land. You know, and built this op- this altar, this altar, excuse me, this altar to God, this El Elohi Israel. Check it out in Genesis. Pretty cool story. You know, how come y'all worship over there, but we worship over here where stuff actually happened? You know, Mr. Know It All. What does Jesus say? He said, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What a statement that we miss the gravity of. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Thank you. Salvation is from 
the Jews. Jesus, she tries, he, he shines a light on her lives. She, he shines a light on her sins, right? And the moment he does that, she says, whoa, whoa let's talk, let, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about this. Let me give you a tricky question. Maybe you can't answer this question. Maybe you'll leave me alone then. It's what we do too, right? Jesus, he, he's not distracted by her diversion. He stays with the truth. She rattles off some stuff, and he goes, eh, that's not going to work. Believe me, the hour is coming and has now come when things are going to change, when worship is going to change. To say that no one was going to worship in Jerusalem was saying that Israel would be no more. That is such a profound, deep, huge statement that we kind of miss there because we don't think of things that way. Now, because of Jesus, God has revealed himself through Jesus, not through the Samaritans. Check that out in the last part of that verse. He, he stays with the truth. You, it's not going to matter where you worship. And trust me, I know what I'm talking about because you Samaritans don't know the whole truth. So the Samaritans only, only followed and believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Law of Moses. That's the only thing they studied. That's the only thing they knew. Now, it does talk about the Messiah in there, which we, she mentions later, but it doesn't give the full revelation. The full revelation of God prior to Jesus was given to and through the Jews for all the nations of the world. And Jesus lets her know that. Now, he's talking to her, but he puts her in her place pretty quickly. Like, Mount Gerizim's great, but if you read the rest of the scriptures, it says that Jerusalem is the place that God has chosen to be worshipped until now. Now it can happen wherever. So, moving right along. Then Jesus drops a truth bomb. Boom, he drops it right on her. Verse 23, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us, showing her Samaritan background, because the place in Deuteronomy where it talks about the Messiah, it talks about him being a Moses-like figure that will come and explain everything to them like Moses had done previously for the people of Israel. And Jesus says, I am he. I am he. Ego iemi in the Greek. I am he. I am the Messiah, the one speaking to you. He says, I will send the Holy Spirit to live in each of my faithful followers. They will be a living temple to God. A living temple to God. And they can and they should and they will worship me everywhere and anywhere and all the time. It's not going to matter which mountain it's on. It's going to be in spirit and it's going to be in truth. It's not going to matter those things. And then what does she do when Jesus says that? When Jesus says, I am he. Ego iemi. I am he. I am the Messiah. You are talking to the one that you're looking for. You are talking to the one that the scriptures talk about. I am he. What's the first thing she does when Jesus reveals his true identity? What does she do? She drops her pot, and she goes back to the town, practically sprinting back to the town. Because when you come in contact with God, you cannot help but share it with other people. Jesus says, I am he, I am the Messiah. And she takes off back to the town as fast as she can. And what does she do? She says, come see the man that told everything about me, right? What is that? That's confession. This woman is out in the middle of the day getting water by herself. That's not when you draw water. 
That's when you draw water when you're an embarrassed person in society and don't want anybody to see you. She goes out in the middle of the day to draw water. She's embarrassed about her past. She's embarrassed about her sin. She's embarrassed that she's been married five times. And she's living with a guy currently that she's not married to. She's embarrassed about those things because that's what sin does. It shames us. But as soon as she understands that Jesus is there and he is the Messiah and he is the one that will take away her sin, her shame is gone. She runs back to the town. She says, Messiah is here. And he told me all about how, who, what I am. Come check it out. And they came back and checked it out. And it says many Many people, Jesus stayed there for two more days, and many people came to follow him, became believers in Jesus. You can't help but evangelize when you have a true worshipful encounter with God. It says there in that verse we just looked at, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I love that. It really had never jumped out to me before until preparing for this message that the Father wants that type of worship. God wants you to worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, I know He wants us that, but that part of that verse had never jumped out to me before until preparing for this message. God wants you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. What is spirit? Spirit means more than just dead acts of the body. You can take your animals to the temple and you can have them sacrificed, but if it's not in spirit then it's not real. You can come to church and you can be here, but if it's not in spirit, then it's not real. You can open your Bible and you can read a bunch of stuff and you can memorize a bunch of stuff and you can say a bunch of stuff, but if it's not in spirit, if it's just a dead act of the body, then it's not what God desires. He desires us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It also means that worship is not confined to a particular place because the Holy Spirit is in us, is in believers. It means we come together to worship together because that's part of worship. But you can worship anytime, anywhere, any way that is in spirit and that is in truth. We are the living temple of God. Worship is not confined to a building or a place. Some of you have had some of the best worship experiences of your life when the right song comes on at the right time on your radio and you pull the car over and you bawl your eyes out because something about God just struck you and you're worshiping right there. Prior to Jesus, that didn't really exist. (laughs) Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for revealing who he really is. So that's spirit. But truth means according to his word, because God's word is truth. God's word is the only truth. God's word is the whole truth. And it is never changing, never has, is never going to. It's always our standard. It's always what we look to, to know truth. God's word is truth. And Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the eternal word, the eternal truthful expression of God the Father in God the Son, the eternal word. So worship is according to and through and because of Jesus. Spirit and truth is what God wants us to worship from. So the question is, how? That's the question I get to. We always get to that. Why, what, how? How do we worship God like that? Let's look at six ways we can worship God or give Him glory. Same difference, ascribing the value that he is due. These are according to uh, James Packer, the one that came up with these six things, and he pulled them all out of Scripture. So the first thing is praising God for all that he is and all his achievements. You want to worship God? Praise him for who he is. Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Catch that? I love that verse. 
new song. Sing to him a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Mm. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all little g-gods. For all the little g-gods of the nations are idols. They are man-made, they are worthless, they are nothing. But this God, this Lord, made the heavens, made it all, the creator of all. That's praise. If you need assistance in finding the language of how to properly praise God, then just spend some time in the Psalms. Just spend some time in the Psalms, and you will recognize something about God that you never realized before, that you never knew, and you'll have a reason to praise Him for something that you didn't even know existed, a characteristic of Him, an attribute of Him, something about Him, some value that you can ascribe to Him and praise Him for. I love the Psalms. Gives us all we need to know. Secondly, six ways to worship God or give Him glory. The second thing is thanking Him for His gifts and His goodness to us. Thanking Him for His gifts and His goodness to us. Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. I always think of that song when I read that verse. I'm thankful for that song because it has made me memorize that verse. And actually, that is not the only place that it says that. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. There's no other reason to find to give thanks to God. Just his goodness is enough reason alone. The fact that your lungs are working and your life is happening and that you have love at all and that you have goodness at all and that you have any kind of satisfaction in your life, any kind of relationship in your life, anything good in your life at all in a sinful world is enough reason to praise God for his goodness. goodness. That he still finds a way to have goodness take place in a world that is totally against him totally about self, totally about what I want, when I want it, how I want it, not what God wants, not what the Creator wants. I want to worship what I created. I want to worship what I have done. The fact that we experience any good in life in those conditions, which is the world in which we live, is enough reason to give God praise continually, all day, every day, right there and right there alone. Third thing, asking Him to meet our own and others' needs. Asking him to meet our own and others' needs. We have a big church word for that. What's it called? Intercessory prayer. Intercession, right? We're interceding for others. And Jesus is interceding for us. All throughout the New Testament, it talks about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, right? Saving us to the othermost. And we know that he is eternally at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, interceding for us all day, every day until he comes back. And we should be doing the same thing. We should be interceding for ourselves, and we should be interceding for others. Probably one of the better things we do, honestly. That's probably one of the more natural things we do right there, especially for, for others. We, we ask God for a lot of stuff. We're, we're fairly good at that one. Sometimes we're not asking for the right things, but we, we, as far as doing it, maybe not the right way, but we are doing it, that number three, asking him to meet others' needs. 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If there were ever a more timely verse about what we should be interceding about, I'm not sure that I could have 
studied the Bible for a year and found a more timely verse for what we need to be interceding about right now as often and as much as we possibly can. Four, offer him our gifts, our service, and ourselves. Offer him our gifts, our services, our service, and ourselves. Did you know that when you serve, that you're worshiping God? (laughs) That when you serve because of God or on behalf of God, that you're worshiping God. When you're choosing to do what he wants, when he wants, it's worshipful. Psalm 96, 8 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. And then, number five, learning of him from his word. Read and preached and obeying his voice. So we want to bring an offering, but we also want to learn about him, and we want to obey his voice. Learning from his word, read and preached. 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, does the, Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, which means to listen and do, is better than the fat of rams. Or you can look in Psalm 119. The first few verses there says, How happy are those whose way is blameless, who live according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep His decrees and seek Him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They follow His ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with a sincere heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes never abandon me we should be learning about God and the only way to learn about God consistently is through his word we must be spending individual and corporate time together in his word learning about him because the more you learn about him the more you want to learn about him and the more you learn about him hopefully the more we desire to obey him and when we don't thankfully he is faithful to forgive us thank you Lord for that And then number six, telling others of his worth, both public confession and testimony to what he has done for you and for us. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go in all the world and proclaim the gospel to all the creation. So that's how we can worship. Here's another way that we can say that. Maybe you can remember it, those things a little bit simpler with this different language. Same six things, said a different way. Lord, you are wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Please, Lord. Take this, Lord. Yes, Lord. Listen, everybody. That's the formula for worship right there. Now, think about what we do when we come together in church. Think about what a typical church service looks like. We come in, we pray to him. And generally, whoever prays to start off our service Praise from a position of gratitude. And praise about how awesome God is. Usually that comes out of our mouth. Just out of just the naturalness of it. We're coming together to worship God and somebody prays how awesome God is. Thank you God for what you've been doing. Thank you God for what you're going to do. And then usually we pray for other things, right? We intercess. Please, Lord, when we come together. Especially when we're broken up into smaller groups. More prayers are even happening then when we're in Sunday school and places like that. Please, Lord, soon. And then 
we sing about the same things. We sing about how awesome God is. We sing about our thankfulness to God. We sing about intercession to God. And then we give an offering. We're giving an offering of our time by being here. We're giving an offering of our energy by being here. We're giving an offering of our finances when we give that way. Take this, Lord. We give an offering as a regular part of worship. And then hopefully, when his word is proclaimed, we say, yes, Lord. Hopefully that's what happens at the end of every single service. Whatever God has, has pricked your heart with, whatever truth he has dropped in your lap or hit you upside the head with or ripped your heart open with, depending on what the truth is and where you are at the current moment, hopefully the answer is yes, Lord. Hopefully it was yes, Lord, before it ever even happened, before he ever even gave you something today. Hopefully you came in here with the attitude of yes, Lord, whatever it is that you put on me today. And then... When the church service ends, hopefully, we leave here, and it's listen up, everybody. Listen up. Here's what God's doing in my life. Here's what God's already done in my life. How are you doing that? Because of God. Where, why do you go to church? And you have an answer. Why are you so hopeful? Peter says that we should always have a defense for the hope that lives within us because of Jesus Christ. Hopefully, listen up, everybody, is part of our worship. Or you can say it another way, even simpler. 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Doing things for the glory of God is worship. Doing anything so that glory is ascribed to God, value is put on God, people are turned to God, is worship. Everything we do all that we do, wherever we are, should always be to the glory of God, and it should always then be worship. It's not always, but it should be always. It should be always, always, always. You can't come in here and worship God and then go somewhere else and think whatever you're doing doesn't count. It either counts as worship for God or it counts as worship of self, and worship of self is worship of Satan. It's the same thing. And I know that's a very binary way of looking things, but that is the truth. You and I, everything we do, are either worshiping God or worshiping ourselves. One of the two. It doesn't change. And when we focus on the right things, our lives change. What we put our focus on determines what we do. Therefore, it determines what happens in our life. When you're focused on worshiping God, and then you're focused on the right things, and then God's fruits of His spirits bear out in your life, and you become more patient, and you become more loving, and you become all the things that we want to be, that we struggle to be because of sin, it changes your life. The more we worship God, the more often we worship God, the more in spirit and in truth we worship God, whether through song, in here, when you wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and spend 15 or 20 minutes going through something in Scripture, where, wherever and whatever we're doing to worship God determines what happens in our life and how we respond to what happens in our life. A church that is full of people that are worshiping God in spirit and in truth will turn the world upside down. We know it because Scripture has already shown us. That's what the first church did. It says they continually met together to learn about God, to break bread, to praise God, and God added to them daily, and the world changed because of it. 
How do we know that? Because you and I are still sitting here 2,000 years later because of what properly worshiping God did in the first church. So every Sunday we come together. Every Sunday we come together. Lord, you're wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Please, Lord, take this, Lord. Yes, Lord, listen, everybody. Listen, everybody, here comes God. That's our prayer and that's our hope. And that is worship. Next week we will finish this series with mission. We will finish this series with mission. Um, and that will kind of sum up all the things we've talked about. If you didn't notice through the scriptures we looked at today, all the other essential traits that we've looked at are part of worship. They are part of properly worshiping God. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to finish with a song straight out of scripture about a God that is deserved of our worship. Uh, If you need to talk or pray, I will be here during that time here in the front with mask and toe. God, thank you. We love you. God, you are so wonderful, and we just forget to focus on it. Lord, I ask for forgiveness for, the, for how much time and energy I waste uh, on things that are frivolous. Uh, I thank you for enjoyment. I thank you for entertainment, God, but please do not l- allow me to allow that to be the object of my worship. God, thank you for reminding me and for reminding us today through your word that the object of our worship should always be you, but it is always something. And we just pray that you would implant deep in our hearts this morning the necessity and the desire to continually worship you with our lives because you alone are worth the worship of our life. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, we pray that if anyone is here that has never place their faith in a loving God that would come to take away their sin, that would bear the brunt of sin, the weight of sin for them. God, if, if someone is here today has never placed their faith in that, Lord, we pray that today is that day. We pray that that person would come down this morning and, and, and place their faith in you because you are truth and that is truth. And eternal life is through you and through what Jesus did on the cross. And we thank you for that this morning, God. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.